The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 13th, 2022. On yesterday's Archive episode, we heard Nick Weaver explain why you should sell your Bitcoin. Weaver discussed whether the platform is really a financial opportunity of historic proportions, the massive criminal problem law enforcement officials have suggested, or something else entirely, a waste of everyone's time and money. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from January 2016, which featured a panel discussion on Bitcoin hosted by the Brookings Institution. The panel featured David Wessel, Michael Barr, Brad Peterson, Barry Silbert, and Margaret Liu on how the blockchain could revolutionize payment flows and reduce the cost of financial transactions, all while securing information and enhancing privacy. Today's episode offers a relatively positive take on Bitcoin, its future potential, and an argument for why you should buy back your Bitcoin if you sold it after listening to yesterday's Archive episode. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 16th, 2016. That was Michael Barr you just heard, non-resident senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings and professor of law at the University of Michigan. Last week, Brookings hosted a discussion on Bitcoin, and the technology that undergirds the currency, specifically focusing on the promise of the distributed ledger. The panel, which also featured David Wessel, Brad Peterson, Barry Silbert, and Margaret Liu, looks at how the blockchain could revolutionize payment flows and reduce the cost of financial transactions, all while securing information and enhancing privacy. They also tackle some of the most pressing policy questions facing the technology and how those tensions can be addressed. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 153, Why You Should Buy Back Your Bitcoin. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm David Wessel. I'm director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy here at Brookings. I uh, want to welcome you all to this event. Uh, I can't remember what we called it. Uh, Beyond Bitcoin, the future of blockchain and disruptive financial technologies. Uh, uh, and this is... As you know, obviously, on the record, and it's being webcast, so if you don't want anybody to know what you say, don't say anything. Um, so we thought about this event for a very simple reason. Uh, to many of us, Bitcoin is somewhere between a fad and a fraud. Uh, it has been promoted by some people as a cryptocurrency embraced by modern-day gold bugs and survivalists who are united in their deep distrust of government, and their rhetoric uh, uh, suggested as much. And that's a very good story, I can say as a former journalist, and I think that's why you've read and heard so much about it. 
But to focus only on that is to focus on the people who said that the internet was a fad and that the only possible commercial use for the internet was pornography. Um, so today we're going to set aside, uh, I think a little bit, although Barry Silbert may disagree with me, the long-term and I think remote possibility that Bitcoin will replace the U.S. dollar someday. And instead, we're going to try and focus on the technology that underlies Bitcoin, uh, the distributed ledger, the blockchain. Uh, I wrote a little Q&A on, on this subject, and I love the statement from the director of research at R3C, uh, R3CEV, which is not a character in Star Wars, but it's a New York, stock, uh, New York startup that's basically a consortium of over 40 banks. Tim Swanson, who's the head of research at R3, says blockchain is a bit like gluten. Everybody talks about it, but no one knows what it is. Uh, so we're going to try and solve that problem today, or at least make a start. Uh, there are people up here who can explain this better than I can, and I'm going to let them do that. But basically, the, the, the starting point is, that, is to think about a payment system, the way money moves around the economy. It, it needs trust. People won't accept payments if they can't count on the payments being of value, a loss of trust in a currency or in a bank can lead to a destabilizing run. And the question is, how do you generate that trust in something called a distributed ledger where banks aren't at the center of it, but that the, the, the ledger, the, the, uh, the record, is distributed and sort of jointly and severally guaranteed by all the people? Now, <clears throat> when we give money to somebody, we know that... I had the dollar, I give the cab driver the dollar, he has the dollar, I no longer have it. It's not so easy <laughs> to do that electronically and have people really trust that. So part of this is an effort to develop, to exploit a technology that allows us so that we both can't claim the same digital dollar, if you will. Um, <clears throat> it's complicated, it's not intuitive, it's unfamiliar to many of us. But I want you to put yourself in the position of where people were in 1993 when the Internet was embryonic and Netscape came out with the first browser that really changed the way we use the Internet. That was 1994. That wasn't so long ago. And we are now at the stage, I think, where we're in the pre-Netscape stage, or maybe we're right at the Netscape stage. And so things that sound very foreign and complicated and uh, maybe even a little bit scary, can, you can either say, throw up your hands, or you can try and understand it. And what we're going to try to do today is understand it. Now, there are a lot of people in this room who are putting money into startups that they hope will exploit this technology. They're obviously enthusiastic, but they wouldn't be putting their money there, and they wouldn't be here. I was struck by a report by some economists at the Bank of England, which is not generally known for wild-eyed irrational exuberance about Silicon Valley's latest idea, and they described the distributed ledger, the technology that underlies Bitcoin, as, quote, a significant innovation, one that could change the way money moves around the economy with less cost, less fraud, fewer mistakes, and more speed. And they say it has applications outside of finance as well. It's already being used by some universities to store student records in an encrypted, in an encrypted form so that an employer can check uh, a CV of, a, of an applicant. And the Bank of England uh, ran, recently ran a competition for students to say, come up with ways that blockchain technology might improve the life of people who live in the UK. 
And the winning team, four students from the University of Arrowboro, came up with some scheme, which they have not yet posted online, they're probably waiting for their patent to be filed, that will uh, somehow be used in the National Health Service's blood supply chain to identify, to, so there's an immutable record of how the blood supply thing is. Now, <clears throat> our goal here at Brookings is to improve governance, and the goal of the Hutchins Center is to improve the quality of fiscal and monetary policy, broadly defined, and public understanding of it. So any new technology, particularly one that is invading something as important and as regulated as the payment system, is going to raise questions of policy. How do we get the benefits, the efficiencies, the new products and services, the financial inclusion, without adding to the risk of financial instability, money laundering, terrorist finance, and hacking? How do we rewrite rules to encourage innovation, to foster startups, new entrants, without unfairly disadvantaging regulated financial institutions upon whom our economy depends. On the other hand, how do we set up a system so these regulated financial institutions, the big banks and credit card companies, don't use the, the government, the regulators, the supervisors, to prevent the entry of a new technology that could er erode their profits? What is a level playing field when the ground is shifting under our feet? So these are the questions we're about to explore. Um, we had a very lively discussion this morning with some of the people in the industry and in the government and in, uh, in the nonprofit sector who think about these things. And I, I think that uh, one of the things I've learned is that this is the kind of thing you don't get when it's explained to you the first time or even the second time. So I look at this as a uh, continuing effort to explain to people who kind of know in the back of their mind this might be more than a fad or a fraud, but explain to me again what exactly is this and why should I care? And is this the internet 25 years earlier? Or is this something that is going to be the, the subject of parody and ridicule because everybody thought it was going to be great and it vanished? I want to make one more point between I, I, before I introduce our panel. This event is 100% funded by the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings. There are people we invited who have invested in the industry, and we invited them because they've invested and they know something about it but they had no control over the agenda. They didn't get to veto anybody. Glenn Hutchins, who contributed the money that led to the creation of the Hutchins Center, has investments in Bitcoin. I don't actually know what they are. Um, he didn't have any uh, veto over this, and this isn't meant to serve his business interests. Uh, I'm very grateful for my colleague, Seth Wheeler, who left the government recently, the Treasury, the Fed, the White House. I don't know why, why did you stop there? You thought it could have gone to the Justice Department and the Department of Education. He left the government. He spent some time here at Brookings. He's about to go work in the private sector, um, but his, the company he's going to work for is not represented here today. And, he, and it's not, he, anything he says, if he opens his mouth, is speaking for himself in his last waning hours as someone who's able to say what he thinks before he goes into private industry and is no longer a free. You're in that great sweet spot. You're not in the government and you're not in the private sector and so on. Um, I also, there are a number of people here from government agencies who we invited because we're trying to be a bridge between the industry and the regulators. Some of them may speak, some of them may only listen. Those who speak are not speaking on behalf of their institutions, but are trying to help us better understand that. Okay, so enough for that. Uh, I'm joined by, up here by four people who are just a few of the people we had in the conversation this morning. Some of the people who were with us this morning are in the front here, and they, I may call on them, or, and I invited them to participate in the panel. We don't have to wait for the formal Q&A. But uh, we're going to start with these four people we have up here. 
Uh, Michael Barr is a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. He's a non-resident senior fellow here at Brookings, and he spent some time in the Treasury uh, during the uh, evolution of Dodd-Frank. So he knows a lot about the financial regulatory system, and he's a, an advisor to one of the companies in this space, uh, Ripple. Uh, Margaret Liu is the Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel of the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. A reminder that uh, we have an unlimited number of federal financial regulatory agencies <laughs> in Washington, plus another 50 at the state level. Uh, Barry Silbert is uh, an entrepreneur who I first met when I was at the Wall Street Journal. I had some idea that seemed completely crazy to me about having some kind of market where privately held companies could change their shares, but it wouldn't be a public market. Um, it turned out to be a big success. He, stole it, he sold it to NASDAQ, and so now he's an investor in uh, the Bitcoin space. Uh, as you'll hear, he's got investments in 60 companies, and showing his, um, that he doesn't have completely good judgment, he's recently bought into the media business. Uh, <laughs> uh, he didn't ask me first, but I told him last night it was a mistake because uh, we know what it's like to own a media thing, uh, a, a, a newsletter, uh, a website, called Coin Center. Coindesk. Coin, Coindesk, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Got to get my, my lingo right. That one too. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Brad Peterson, uh, who has been involved in uh, companies such as eBay uh, and, and, and uh, PayPal, uh, is now, and was at Schwab, the bro discount brokerage firm, um, is now the executive vice president and chief information officer at NASDAQ, which I made the mistake this morning of calling a stock exchange, but it's not. It's a technology company. I learned my lesson. Um, Thank you. Um, and they are one of the users of this underlying technology, and so I thought it would be useful to hear somebody who who's using this technology but is not out there um, uh, buying Bitcoins because he thinks the Federal Reserve is going to put us under in the next 15 <laughs> minutes. Um, so I've asked uh, uh, first uh, Barry to talk a little bit about the technology for people who don't really know what this is or have a limited understanding. Uh, Margaret, uh, and then I, I've asked uh, uh, Michael Barr to talk a little bit about the policy questions it raises. We're going to have a little discussion up here. I'm going to bring in some of the people who joined us this morning, and then we'll be happy to take your questions. So I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but uh, if I really understood this stuff, I'd be able to explain it much more succinctly. <laughs> so Barry, would you start, please? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so um, uh, I guess one more minute on, on digital currency group. So DCG, it's our mission to accelerate the development of a better financial system. Uh, and what we do is we build and we invest in companies in the Bitcoin and blockchain space. And then we use our insight, our network, and our access to capital to grow those businesses. So as, uh, as David mentioned, we've invested in 60 companies now located in 20 countries, which gives us pretty unique insight into what's happening in the space. Um, and uh, we did also just get involved in the media business by buying Coindesk and are putting on a conference uh, in May in New York. Uh, you're all welcome to join, consensus. Uh, so um, out of curiosity, uh, and actually I should mention, this is maybe relevant, we just raised money ourselves um, from a really unique group of investors such as MasterCard, CIBC, CME Group, New York Life, Transamerica, Bain, RRE, and some others, uh, who they themselves are quite interested as well in what's happening with this technology and this, and this innovation. So uh, whenever I get to speak, I, I, uh, I always like to do an audience poll. Um, so by a show of hands, on the spectrum of Bitcoin skeptic over here to Bitcoin believer, uh, put your hand up if you're a Bitcoin skeptic. Friendly audience. Okay, well, who's a Bitcoin believer? 
Wow. <laughs> we have a cross-section of America here. <laughs> so um, great. was my Bitcoin 101. I don't need to do uh, too much. So just for, for those of you who are not familiar with this terminology, so I use the word Bitcoin um, as a kind of a general description of a concept similar to uh, Kleenex and Xerox. There are 600 different digital currencies and lots of different protocols out there. And so I'm, I'm, when I say Bitcoin, I'm talking about all of them. Uh, I'm certainly a believer in Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And so think about Bitcoin as three things. Bitcoin is a, a currency or it's a store of value. Uh, Bitcoin is a financial rail on which money can move around the world. And Bitcoin is a ledger on which uh, information can be stored, ownership information is an example. And so why does it matter? Uh, well, it matters because if you think about the opportunities for Bitcoin as a currency, from a global perspective and emerging markets, the ability for people to store their wealth in something other than a currency that is being uh, devalued or debased uh, year after year that has some level of appeal, kind of like a digital version of gold. Um, use case number two, uh, a financial rail, everybody who has sent money to a person, cross-border, um, certainly cross-currency, can appreciate the friction and the cost associated with that. Bitcoin has the potential to make those type of, of movements of money frictionless and basically free, and that's quite transformative. And then thirdly, this use case, this ledger system, uh, if you're involved in the financial markets, um, you know how inefficient it is to move an asset from a buyer to a, from a seller to a buyer. Uh, there are opportunities in both the financial markets as well as outside to use this decentralized ledger to hold ownership information and, 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 and in effect, essentially disintermediating or, limit, or eliminating any of the middlemen that are, are currently being paid to kind of be that trusted authority on ownership. Uh, so kind of where we are in the whole evolution of this industry. So Bitcoin is based on a white paper that was released in 2008 by a person or a group um, named Satoshi Nakamoto. In 2009 was the first version of this code that was released to the public. In 2009, 2010, and for the better part of 2011, no one cared about it, other than a very, very small group of, of technologists that were experimenting with this technology. If you fast forward to 2011, um, there was um, some publicity around a website called Silk Road, which was a website where you could go buy drugs and do other bad things. And that was really the first time that, um, that Bitcoin itself um, was attributed a value. You started seeing people kind of exchanging goods and services for Bitcoin. And that was, I think, the beginning of what I call the early adopter phase. And that was when you started seeing angel investors like myself, you saw entrepreneurs getting involved and starting to build the businesses that were taking advantage of the opportunities that this technology presented. Fast forward to 2013 is when the next phase started, uh, which was the venture capital phase. So starting in 2013, you saw some of the most well-known investors, such as Andreessen Horowitz and Unisquare Ventures, Benchmark, Excel, uh, investing in this industry, backing some fantastic entrepreneurs with great big ideas. And to date, uh, about a billion dollars has been invested into this industry by those venture capitalists. 2015 was the start of what I call the Wall Street phase. Uh, if you've been following the headlines, there's a lot of interest in especially the blockchain technology, which we'll talk more about. Uh, and in my opinion, in 2016, we're going to start the narrative um, turning back to the benefits of Bitcoin as a currency and as a, as a store of value, which will lead up to what I think will ultimately be mass global consumer adoption once all this happens. Thank you. Um, I know that my colleague is setting up some chairs back there, but there are a few seats in the front here if you want to move forward, anybody. There's three in the front row. I promise not to call on you. And there's a few over here on the aisle. So please uh, feel free to come forward if you like. Um, I should say that um, Barry believes that Bitcoin as a currency, as a store of value, 
is integral to this and essential and will grow in importance. Um, uh, it, that is not universally held. There's a really interesting discussion in the industry about that, and I'm going to ask uh, Brad to talk about that in a minute. But before we do, Michael, can you help us understand what are the policy issues that this raises? What are the upsides and downsides of this? Sure. Thanks, David. Um, uh, let me just say at the outside, uh, David mentioned briefly, I'm an advisor to Ripple Labs, but anything I'm saying now is uh, only my own views and shouldn't be attributed to them or to David or to Brookings or the Hutchins Center or anybody else. Um, so uh, David asked me to talk a little bit about the public policy implications. Uh, I want to talk first about some potential upsides, and then I'm going to talk about some potential downsides. And let me emphasize as I'm talking about them the fundamental fact that nobody really knows. Uh, so uh, th this uh, technology is still very much in its infancy, and the directions that it might take, I think, um, are, are still very much up for grabs. Um, uh, David mentioned, um, and, and Barry mentioned, these three kinds of functions um, for the underlying technology. Uh, uh, the role as a currency, the role as rails or transmission mechanism for uh, transferring value um, of transferring money um, over, um, over time and space. Uh, and a third um, a basic function of having a ledger, having a way of knowing what the accounts are in the system. Um, I'm myself uh, quite a skeptic about the first of these uses. That is, I'm quite skeptical about uh, the use of uh, Bitcoin and the underlying technology as being important for currency purposes. But I think I'm quite encouraged about the potential for uh, the underlying blockchain technology and distributed ledgers, so the system for transferring the money and the way of accounting for it, as being um, quite possibly um, uh, extremely significant for the way that we send money and account for things in lots of parts of our economy. And I think it could really be quite transformative. So let me talk a little bit about uh, some of the potential um, upsides. Um, one upside is uh, simply um, reducing the costs and increasing the efficiency and speed of our system for sending money. Uh, we have a very outdated system in the United States and to some extent globally uh, for uh, sending money. And we spend lots of money sending money, money that we could spend doing other productive things in our economy. Uh, so one, I think, really quite, in a sense, low-hanging fruit for the changes that are in this technology is to wring some of the inefficiency out of the system uh, and to be able to send money more cheaply uh, and more quickly. Um, that can um, also have implications for social policy. So if we can, for example, send money uh, more quickly and more cheaply, we can reduce the costs of sending remittances uh, overseas. So if you're a worker in the United States and you want to send money uh, home to your family, it's still extremely expensive to do that in the payment system we have in this world. And the technology um, that's available uh, with distributed ledgers and blockchains can dramatically reduce the cost of doing that and the security of doing that. Uh, a second potential implication is reducing uh, for consumers the incidence of overdraft. Uh, consumers spend $32 billion a year in overdraft fees. Uh, if you have instantaneous trusted transactions, uh, you can uh, eliminate that kind of risk and cost. Uh, another potential implication is around um, the way we use uh, our mobile devices, our phones or the Internet, 
Uh, we all basically give away our privacy to very large companies in exchange for being able to use the Internet. Uh, if we can reduce the costs of transactions sufficiently, we might be able to uh, give consumers the choice of keeping their own privacy, having ownership of their own information, and paying very small fractions of a penny uh, for transactions. It's not really possible in the current payment system, but if we squeeze down that cost sufficiently, we might gain more ownership of our own financial lives and of our own privacy, which I think would be uh, all for the good. Uh, we might be able to improve um, uh, security. Uh, we might be able to, there, there are downside risks I'll talk about for uh, terrorist financing and money laundering, but there are also upside potentials of using this technology to do a much better job uh, catching the bad guys at a much lower regulatory burden on the financial system. And I think this um, uh, should be uh, certainly uh, deployed. We have the ability to use this kind of technology to improve financial stability. Uh, so one problem um, in the financial crisis was that it was very hard for both regulators and market participants to understand who owed what to whom when, what collateral was where, um, what transactions had been engaged in that exposed one part of the system to risk. Uh, and with this kind of um, technology uh, and distributed ledger, uh, it could be deployed uh, to make it easier for the whole market to see exactly what is going on in the financial system. And that could be uh, significantly um, enhancing to the networks of trust that undergird our financial system, a way of building that trust because the information is all fully exposed uh, and open. Another potential upside uh, implication is for corporate governance. Uh, so if we have used this technology of a trusted architecture and open ledgers, uh, we could significantly improve the ability of investors to see what is actually going on in the balance sheet of firms uh, and to have more trust in the accounting of firms uh, and a reduction in fraud and restatements uh, at firms if we have that ledger that describes exactly the sequence of events that leads to a balance sheet. We could even, in my view, this may be counterintuitive, I think we could improve corporate governance and have a longer-term view uh, if we use this kind of system to have firms reveal their balance sheet every single day to the public instead of managing for quarterly earnings. Uh, and that could significantly improve long-term uh, corporate governance uh, with daily kinds of disclosure. So all of these things are examples of potential upside. They're all just ideas. Uh, what are some of the potential um, downsides? One of the potential downsides is not fully understanding the implications of a combination of factors in technology. Uh, so many of you um, uh, have heard of uh, high-frequency trading or artificial intelligence um, in finance. There are aspects of this underlying blockchain technology that share three features with that, a scalability, uh, automaticity, meaning a machine does the work, um, and um, uh, immediacy, the transaction is instantaneous. That has lots of benefits in terms of the speed and efficiency I described, but it may also introduce new risks into the system that we don't really understand, that we don't really understand what the machine is doing and how it will react in particular moments. If you have uh, a self-executing contract that changes, for example, from debt to equity in certain circumstances, you might be able to use that to improve 
the strength of the financial system, but what if it triggers in ways that you don't expect um, in unanticipated circumstances? So there may be new risks. There are certainly um, uh, money laundering and terrorist financing risks with uh, this uh, technology in the same ways uh, or in different ways, but, but in similar sorts of ways to the ways there are with other forms of payment systems. And we need to be cognizant as this system is developing that there are important regulatory oversights in place so it's not used uh, for, uh, for wrongful or harmful or, or scary purposes. <coughs> uh, there are risks that the system itself could be vulnerable because of uh, cybersecurity attacks, uh, operational risk, uh, weak governance, uh, so-called uh, uh, mining pools that try and take over uh, the Bitcoin system, or other attacks, uh, hacking attacks, on the integrity of this uh, distributed payment system. Um, and uh, there are potentially um, a consumer and investor protection problems uh, with consumers uh, being able to understand, investors being able to understand uh, exactly what's going on in transactions and to have those transactions protected um, in, um, in a sufficient way. Uh, and lastly, there's a, a public policy risk uh, that all of this concern about these various, legitimate concern about these various issues I've just raised uh, leads policymakers to take steps that lock in the dinosaurs, that lock in old ways of doing things, that lock in uh, dominance of banks, um, that lock in outmoded ways of sending funds. And if we kind of create a regulatory system that advantages the dinosaurs, um, we're going to lose out on that potential innovation. So that kind of balance between openness to change and the risk of uh, the innovations that I've described is one I think that is going to be an ongoing challenge. Thank you. Brad, can you, in as practical terms as possible, help me understand what is it that this technology, the distributed ledger and blockchain, allows me or your outfit to do better or differently than the we did before. Okay. And can I do a, a little poll too, like Barry Absolutely. Did? <laughs> so how many how many people in the audience have read the original Bitcoin nine page paper? Wow. Holy cow. <laughs> okay. That's this that's... is not your typical Brookings event. <laughs> <laughs> So if you haven't, I would encourage you to do it. And it's really easy to find the right one if you just go to Google and, and do Bitcoin and PDF. You'll, the first thing that will come up. So you may have a chance with Coindesk if you want to modify that search for it to be consensus. <laughs> but, uh, but it really cleanly yeah, Just will... change the name of the outfit to Bitcoin.pdf. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it does, it does show you the original paper. And um, in that paper, so before I answer that question, um, what I think has um, been combined, and I'm, and I'm now kind of looking at innovation differently, and, it's, and I call it innovation by combination. And what you'll read and what you'll see in that paper, and if you've read it before, I'd go back and read it again and look for these things. There's, a, there's things that were developed and conceived, very, very um, sophisticated, deep thought, very, some of the smartest people in society, um, over the last 25-plus years came up with these concepts that were not implementable because of either the cost of compute um, and, and the networking technology that existed at the time. So a lot of the solutions that are in financial services predated 
these ideas. And these ideas didn't come up in 2008, they were combined in 2008. So the innovation was the combination. And on top of that, um, if you're an economist, you can look for things that you'll recognize, um, like um, you know, supply and demand, how do you actually, how do systems find equilibrium um, as you modify supply and demand and competition? And all those things are, are and, and then there's the monetary policy that's a pro programmable 140-year monetary policy that is, that is outlined in, in this um, system that was put together. So the, the real interesting part about this is people thought about it, and the day they think about it, um, normally they write a white paper, but this group of people actually then implemented it, and it's running today still. So it's a, it's a fascinating um, method of innovation. It's a fascinating experiment in a you know, global experiment. So if nothing else, you should read about it and then see that it came to life, and then try and understand what are the, um, the benefits and limitations. So the things that are there that you've seen before that have changed the music industry, peer-to-peer -peer networking, Took advantage of, we all went out and bought broadband networks and we had excess capacity because we kept buying the latest PC and it had, could do a lot of things. Well, it turns out it was a great network node that you created um, where you could transfer music files and the size of the music file happened to be small enough to be able to move over that network and you had things like Napster and Kazaa. And then the same people that did that. Um, so peer-to-peer -peer networking, you'll read about that in that paper. So that's one of the things. Um, so a lot of financial services were not built with peer-to-peer -peer networking. They were built on networking technologies that were predated that. Um, but you, I'll, I'll give you the other one is Skype. So, so Skype was the other one. You built a phone company on peer-to-peer -peer networking, and a lot of us still use that today. But it didn't replace the whole telecommunications infrastructure. But it caused... Um, and music didn't go away, and there's new models. You know, I, iTunes was, um, was, was the next generation of, of innovation and modif modification of that. So you have peer-to-peer -peer networking. You also have um, securing. And, and by the way, peer-to-peer -peer networking has some, some limitations in stability. When you build it out, um, it has some very um, great benefits of resiliency as well. And the internet is a distributed network. But the Skype network had some, some vulnerabilities, so you have to look at, say, how, how could, could we make a Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network more robust than it is today, and, and there's some work to be done there. The other one is cryptography, and um, the, you know, how secure is any algorithm, and all the algorithms we used to use have been broken, and, we've, and then we, we upgrade and move to the next one. And there's some thought that quantum computers could break the algorithm that we currently use, um, that we all use, um, and all of our banking systems will be open. So that's uh, so that's another that's another risk that you can read about and worry about. We all do in financial services, um, but this used state-of-the-art cryptography um, to secure information, and all the innovation. Uh, or I should say, first-generation um, automation in financial services. You see all the the info security and cybersecurity issues because we didn't have those tools at the time. So this system was actually built with security. So as someone who implements systems in financial services, I think it's really responsible how it was done. Whether it was done to hide from people, um, it also is very beneficial to protect. So 
Um, so it turns out it's, it can be used on both sides. And, and oftentimes people say it can be used by terrorists, um, but it can also be used in a positive way to protect. And then the other one is this proof of work, this notion of um, in there you will see that you're able to not have that double spend problem because you can go back very cleverly and prove that that is in fact the copy of, or that is that, that asset or that, that whatever you're trying to describe, it is actually the one that you're about to transact. Very smart, but you can read about the problem with the Bitcoin one today is it's wasting electricity. It's highly, um, you know, computationally, um, it, 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 create, it, it chews up a lot of computation um, just to facilitate this notion of mining. So there's, there's some negative to that, but all those put together have created uh, something that we can all look to and say, I can, I can take a copy of this official record and I can give it to someone that's distributed and they can read it and have confidence that that exists today. Um, it's very powerful. So th those simple things coming together would allow you to have the IRS. Well, I shouldn't use that one as the first positive one. Um, <laughs> so you would have, you would have um, it, your auditors to audit your financial records. You could give ENY, PwC, and if you look at it, they're very interested in this. You could have much more um, integrity of financial records, and the auditors would have a copy so they would be able to look at the copy of their clients' transactions. It could be protected. It could be viewable by them. You could have a copy of someone who's interacting, um, a, a ledger um, copy of it that is distributed to a different country. So you get incredible performance. You get efficiency of, of uh, information, and you have controllability of, of who you enable to look at it. So... That's the starting point of uh, read the paper, um, really try and understand why it's different from the traditional monolithic centralized database system. So companies I've worked for, PayPal created head security. PayPal had efficiency because you can transfer money to someone else on PayPal with just, um, it's all within one database. So incredible efficiency, but it actually is a centralized database. And to this day, PayPal is still trying to re-architect re it into a more distributed model. This starts out from distributed from data. Let me ask you. Let me just ask you two questions before I turn yep. to Margaret. So, PayPal, my son sent me some money on Venmo yep. on my mobile phone. Didn't cost me any money in transaction fees. So, what is it you're offering me as a consumer that I don't already have with this? With with um, what we're talking about yeah. with blockchain. What's the advantage? I can already do this. Okay, that, that's a, you know, now you're branching to a different piece of this. Yeah. So uh, I think what, what blockchain has actually done and by coming together in the system that, that Bitcoin is, it's demonstrated that you, you can do this with a set of modern technologies that each one individually is available today and has probably been put together in a solution that you're talking about. So finding the... The, the innovation will happen well that where there is acute need. And I, think, and I think you being able to transfer just money to me, there's many different ways for us to do that. So I don't think that's the first place right. that that gets solved. And what about, just to go to the NASDAQ, but is this going to make it better for me if I want to sell or buy a share of stock? What difference will it make? 
um, huge difference, okay. but I don't want to dominate on. No, no, sorry. Just talk on, about that. Okay, so I'll, I'll just I'll, from the point of view of the buyer and the seller of the stock. Okay, let me let me give you a couple areas where I think there's acute need, in, in that in that situation. Um, so we can trade, and everyone reads about there was a huge race to speed to be able to trade as fast as the speed of light. We're almost near. We're almost there. So you you actually match buyers and sellers, but then when you actually consummate all the other things that have to happen. And in the olden days, it was you had to give someone a paper certificate, and they had to give you some money for it. So that's essentially, it's pretty simple. And if you look at how all that simple transaction gets, gets completed, it today takes three days. So you go, really? It really if takes I can buy the stock in minutes. Microseconds. But, no, no, microseconds. microseconds. Really? But it takes three days before the settle. The settle. Yeah. So, so you go, okay, that's... That's, that's, and there's a lot of then things that get tied up um, in that process. Like if I'm, the, if I'm the person who's selling and I want to use that money, I can't use that money immediately. Because it has to go through some centralized system and another centralized yeah. system. So, and that was all done. It's, it's actually quite brilliant and, 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 and very reliable, but it just is, takes, takes way too long. But if the another one though that I think is is really interesting is no, so the advantage of the new technology is that could all be done relatively yes, instantly instantly so and it should be right. it should be done instantly and um, and we can do that so uh, so that's a that's an interesting one. The other one is if you're a company and you're the CEO trying to run the company and think about you know activism today um, you'd you'd want to know and if you're a tech company tech companies always ask this question. You know, I'd, I'd really, and we have a service that, that allows them to understand who their shareholders are. So you're, they're working on behalf of the owners of the company. You'd want to know, did I have an ownership change? Is there someone new that I'm working for? You know, let's talk the positive way. I should know immediately. <laughs> they want me to know that I should be working on their behalf immediately, and it takes them 90 days to get that. So that's even worse than the three days. So you can imagine that if 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 I'm a company, a public company, and I understand that these things are transacting in microseconds, my, my mind is going to think that I can also go read my ledger and see who my current shareholders are. And then the other one is shareholder voting. We all vote. We all get these packets of paper. Sustain, it's the worst sustainability thing, and we proxy voting um, should be. We have We have iPhones and they should all come to us and we should be able to hit the, the voting and it should be done that way and it, it's this really outdated process and it's a billion dollar business for, a, for an incumbent has for just sending us wads of paper that we throw away and then we don't even vote and we don't have, even have good records of proxy, proxy voting. So those would be the three okay. accrued changes. Okay. I, did, I did, did, so can I address the Venmo question? Yes, um, and okay. then I want to get Margaret. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so one, um, I assure you, you're you're paying for it somehow. Right. Venmo. Um, and I'm not curious. I, I don't know what their what their business model is, but if you're not paying for it now, that's not a very sustainable business model. Right. Um, uh, two, um, I imagine in order to to send Venmo money, two people have to have Venmo accounts. I imagine that in order to have a Venmo account. There has to be some level of bank account, credit card connectivity, which that eliminates the majority of the world right there. Right. Bitcoin, blockchain, you don't need any of that. Right. Margaret, two questions for you. One is, what is the role of the state regulators in this incredibly global, fast-changing, technologically 
uh, mobile space? And how do you deal with the question that Michael raised about we want the good, but we don't want any of the bad? Uh, thank you, David, and thanks to everybody for, for coming today. So state regulators, um, and uh, actually I should start with, I am with an organization called the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. We are the membership, professional membership policy and coordinating group for the state regulators in all the 50 states, D.C., the territories. Um, state regulators regulate a broad ecosystem of financial services um, entities that operate in their states. This includes about 4,000-plus community banks, um, non-bank financial services providers such as mortgage companies um, in many states, payday lenders, uh, money transmitters, uh, and, um, and the list goes on. Um, state regulators operate and implement state laws relating to financial regulation. Uh, and in the virtual currency space, one of the things that the states are, are wrestling with, as are other regulators, is um, understanding the business models, understanding um, the, the opportunities and the challenges that Michael so well laid out, um, and figuring out how those fit into um, their you know, statutory requirements, their mandates, their responsibilities. Um, I should also mention that state regulators in the financial area coordinate very closely with federal regulators, uh, the Federal Reserve, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, FDIC, um, and the new um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And so, you know, from a kind of day-to-day -day state regulator job, one of the things that our members do in the non-bank arena is we license these different entities. So licensing is a credentialing process. It's tell me who you are, what you propose to do in our state, um, and, um, and I, as the licensing authority, state regulators, um, have the responsibility of making sure that you are who you say you are um, and that you have, some, you have the requisite capabilities, resources, and financial strength to do what you say you're going to do um, because the state regulator's job is to protect the marketplace um, and the consumers. Um, and some of these virtual currency business models uh, fall under existing state licensing um, and financial regulation laws. And so state regulators are looking at this. You know, we understand it is a, it, this is a new area. Um, just listening to, you know, Brad and, and Barry talk about the different business models and the uses illustrates the complexity um, and how hard it is for, for regulators or for anybody um, to, uh, to wrap their heads around it. And regulation by nature um, tends to be reactive historically. And, and so this is really, I think, challenging state regulators to, to think differently, but yet we do have a structure of existing laws and regulations. A lot of the risks that um, Michael talked about um, and, and the opportunities are the same ones you have with regular money and banking and financial services. And so it's about using some of the tools that we already have, um, but also you know, engaging a lot with outside stakeholders. Um, with, with academics, with um, you know, think tanks, and with the industry to try to understand it and to, you know, there, there's a lot of balancing that's going to go on. Pu public policy lots of times is about balancing different priorities, balancing the risks and opportunities, certainly um, creating a space for innovation, but also recognizing that to have good innovation, you in the financial world, you, should, you also need a stable marketplace to begin with because if the underlying marketplace is not stable, um, if people and institutions don't have trust in that marketplace, then you can't have innovation. Uh, and, and so it's, um, it's an ongoing process. Uh, I think that it, it's going to take time for regulators um, to, you know, 
to, to you know, kind of figure out the right way to encourage the good and manage out um, or mitigate the risks. Some of the, it seems to me that <clears throat> some of the, some of this is about finding the right metaphor for explaining something which is foreign to many of us. Uh, some of the innovation we've seen in the economy in the last 20 years started in largely unregulated parts of the economy. Uh, Google was not, didn't need to go to the Department of Justice to say it's okay for you to take the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal's advertisements. They, uh, the, the Internet did brush up against telecom regulation, and we saw the tension there. In healthcare, uh, there's very little to stop uh, a doctor from offering you some advice or some therapy, but when, if a doctor wants to use a medical device or a, a drug, we regulate that through the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is criticized often at the same moment for being letting too much through and not enough through. So, Barry, I wondered if you could help us understand is the current regulatory regime in financial services in particular encouraging or discouraging this innovation? And if it's both, where is it open and where is it causing problems? Um, so if you look at, um, let's look at it from a global perspective. Uh, so there are countries around the world um, that uh, have said, we banned Bitcoin. Russia, China, is not making up its mind. It's today it's not banned, but tomorrow maybe. Um, you have countries such as the UK and Germany who are taking a very supportive, accommodative approach. And what I mean by that is it's 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 um, they're creating a, a playground that you know I mean that's a wrong term, but an area where where startups and entrepreneurs can innovate and experiment. Uh, and kind of getting a bit of a free pass uh, from regulators, you know, until such time as those businesses become more material. Here in the U.S., um, I think the regulators are all well-intentioned. Uh, I think, as demonstrated this morning when we were having a bit of a discussion or a debate about what is Bitcoin, is it a currency, is it a commodity, is it a property, is it a technology, is it a service, is it a product, um, depending on how you answer that question, really will determine which regulator is the proper regulators regulated. And so, so I think here in the U.S., there's a lot of learning going on, certainly a lot of education going on. I think the challenges that that creates, though, um, is entrepreneurs um, and investors that back those entrepreneurs, they don't like to sit around and wait uh, for clarity. They don't like to sit around and wait for permission. So um, the, the best entrepreneurs that have uh, the best intentions um, who can access capital are building. And they're trying to maintain an open dialogue. They're trying to be good corporate citizens. Um, and they may be unintentionally getting involved in gray areas. Some of them may, may be crossing the line and, and will be penalized for it. Um, and it creates a very interesting opportunity um, and a real challenge for, for the regulators. Where I see it um, right now is the, most, the, the biggest challenge here in the US right now is on the banking side. And what we have found is our 60 companies are having um, a real challenge getting a bank account, regardless of the business model. These companies, uh, they could not, they may not touch exchange Bitcoin and fiat currency. They may not, they may not custody money, uh, which I think are the two highest risk things that they can do. Yet, because somehow, some way, they're involved in this in this Bitcoin space, um, they can't get a bank account, and that really is going to stifle innovation. And it's disappointing because the banks want to work with these companies. By and large, these are co these companies have raised a billion dollars of capital from some of the smartest investors in the world. Yet the banks are saying, 
we just can't or do not want to deal with the additional scrutiny we're going to get from our regulators, so sorry we can't help you. Um, and, and I'm hoping that through conversations like this, we can, we can advance that somehow. Michael, how much of an obstacle is it for a startup in this space uh, that the regulatory system is fragmented and uh, uh, um, understandably cautious about this stuff? And what advice do you give to somebody in this space about how to navigate that since you can't really change it I mean, if you're a small company? <laughs> You, you certainly can't uh, change it, even if you're a big company or the government. I right. mean, we, we have a very we have a very fractured uh, uh, regulatory environment in finance. Uh, many people have tried to change it for many years. Um, it does present challenges. Um, I think, in part, um, companies uh, focus on particular uses of the technology and then pursue that strategy. So, if you're a company that's working with banks on improving the efficiency of their payments within their bank, there's a pretty well-established oversight system for that within the bank regulatory agencies. Or if you're trying to improve settlement times for, um, uh, for uh, securities transactions, you can go to the SEC, and there's a, a pretty well-established system. It's not, I'm not saying it's efficient, but it's well-established um, for doing that. I think there are many issues... And if you're thinking about um, uh, blockchain technology and distributed ledgers on a broad kind of holistic ecosystem level, there's not an easy way um, to navigate that system. I think there could be a role for um, the Financial Stability Oversight Council in bringing the agencies together to think holistically about the set of issues uh, involved in blockchain technology. I think that uh, there's a potential role um, for the Federal Reserve uh, as the uh, systemic uh, regulator for payment settlements and clearance systems uh, down the road uh, to put in place a, a more holistic framework for the ecosystem. But I think for you know, the medium term, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. And Margaret, um, can you give us some examples of what how different states have dealt with these issues and what we learned from their experiences? Absolutely. Um, and the, one of the, the beauty of having 50 states and 50 sets of laws, 50 state legislatures, um, is that there are opportunities um, for innovation and experimentation at a more local level um, so you can kind of figure out the good and, and the bad. Um, and there are a lot of initiatives um, in a lot of areas that started that way. Um, New York is one example. Um, the New York Department of Financial Services came out with a um, kind of a soup to nuts um, Bitcoin regulatory regime, kind of commonly known as the Bit License. Um, they pursued a, um, a, a long period of inquiry, uh, held public hearings, um, and, and sought to do their uh, due diligence. Um, there are a lot of just licenses out there now. Um, they sought to address um, some of the concerns through you know, several drafts and, and comments um, from lots of different stakeholders, um, from law enforcement to the investment world, consumer groups, and of course the industry. Um, and one of the things that they have tried to do, and it's early days, and so it's, um, it's a regime worth watching um, because it is comprehensive, uh, and you know, because it's, it's New York, and New York is a you know, fin you know, financial capital of the United States, um, and what they've done there um, is, uh, for example, to try to accommodate the um, feedback from startups and smaller entre entrepreneurs, they tried to create authority for um, a, a conditional license, which was intended to be 
Um, I don't want to necessarily correlate it to, with the industry's call for an on-ramp, but it was um, an effort and a mechanism for creating a license that might not have as much as or might be different than the standard license. There are companies that are going through the licensing process. I know at least one or two companies have been granted a license. There are many other states that are looking at their um, money transmitter laws because that is where the nexus is to, to certain virtual currency activities. And those are really the ones that are more closer to um, retail payments and, and consumer uses. Um, uh, you know, Texas, Kansas, um, North Carolina ha has been in the process of trying to modernize their, their laws. Um, you know, the, the reality is, is that you do have um, state money transmitter laws that are 10, 15, 20, 25, um, 30 years old. And, you know, the nature of the democratic process is it takes a while for it to, um, it to catch up. Um, what you're also seeing is a lot of states, because they are interacting with um, virtual currency companies on a day-to-day -day basis, is that there is a growing base of knowledge um, and experience with these companies. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of it is learning still. California has done some things in terms of outreach. Um, CSBS, on behalf of all the states, we do a lot of dialogue with um, companies and with um, the think tanks that are in this space, um, all to contributing to, to the knowledge. Um, David, you said earlier that you have to kind of hear about these things, um, you know, unless you're somebody like Barry who's been in it for so long and steeped in it. Um, as an outsider, you have to keep hearing about it and keep having these conversations to continue to learn. Um, and then the business model continues to evolve too. Um, and, and so I cannot, um, you know, sort of underestimate the, um, the, the knowledge challenge for, for, any, for, for anybody, but particularly with regulators um, with responsibilities, you know, around public trust, around protecting financial marketplace, consumer protection, money laundering. David, on the uh, on the bit, uh, bit license. It, to, um, to, so one of my colleagues has the microphone. Bring it forward because I want to get some of the panelists. Right, Brent. Okay, thanks. Go ahead, please. So, um, so uh, bit license. Um, so we're in New York, and uh, I testified during the hearings. We were very involved in the drafting. Um, well intentioned. Um, Superintendent Lawski and his staff, um, I think, really did a good job trying to uh, reflect the reality. Um, and certainty is better than uncertainty, and no regulation is perfect. Where that legislation or that license fell short uh, is actually on this on ramp. So the issue is um, we, one of our subsidiaries, spent, I believe, $100,000 um, to apply for a bit license between legal and you have to do these background checks. And, um, and this is already a regulated business. Um, and so $100,000 to apply, basically. And the issue is, is if you're a startup with a fantastic idea um, and you build a product um, and you want to release it um, and you want to you know, sell your product to people in the New York State, um, you can't afford to get a license or file for a license, but, and you also can't raise money because they don't want to give you money because you may not get the license. And because there is not clarity around what does this on-ramp look like, at what point do you actually have to get the license, we're seeing companies leave New York, we're seeing companies cut off New York um, citizens, or, or, or residents from, from using the products. And that's, so that's a, there are good things License, sort of, um, but that's not really the model that hopefully the other 49 states follow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So just a brief comment there. Um, what uh, We've heard that feedback, and I understand the, the position of the entrepreneurs, the smaller companies, and the startups. But when you think about it from a regulator's standpoint, particularly because um, the the focus of these activities are the um, of the bit license are consumer facing activities. Um, you know, if one consumer is poorly, you know, has, has a bad experience or there's fraud, um, that's the regulator's responsibility. And so it's the it, it's the it's a balance. Um, I I don't have the a, a right answer. You know, and one of the things about the New York conditional is that it does leave the superintendent or the regulator the ability to, to set those conditions. And so I think that we need to give it time to see how it, it plays out. But you know, when you're in a position of trust, handling something of value for consumers and being paid to do that, um, there are certain costs of doing that business, too. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of the people who were in the thing this morning uh, to talk a little bit. Robin, would you mind? Uh, Robin Weissman is with uh, Coin Center, which is a, a nonprofit uh, 501c Three or four? Four. 501c4 four, that's active in this area. I know you've spent time in your organization talking to members of Congress and talking to regulators. What do you think is the biggest issue or question or caution you'd like to give the policy community so we don't blow this? <laughs> Thanks for the question. Um, first of all, I would like to say that all policymakers in D.C. have been incredibly open to learning and to having conversations I think, as we were talking about earlier, the biggest probably challenge facing Bitcoin today is the knowledge gap between the people that are responsible for making these regulations. I'm looking at Margaret, all 50 states. We spent a lot of time in a number of states helping make sure the people that have bills are up to speed on these issues, but it's very complex to understand, and they're trying to update old regulations. Um, David, to answer your question, I think that so the biggest challenge would be the knowledge gap. The biggest question, really, in the minds of regulators, as Margaret was saying, is how are we going to protect consumers? And that's also an interesting question because so far in Bitcoin, there's some consumer adoption, so there's some consumers to protect, and we have some real things we can be focused on today. But some of the other questions are more out there, like how do you do AML, KYC, on a decentralized... Don't know acronyms. Um, anti-money laundering, know your customer, customer. <laughs> protections, that's FinCEN's um, charge at the, at the Treasury Department. How do our old rules, really, without even getting into specifics of which ones, but how do the old rules, how do our existing rules that were designed for closed systems that are well-intentioned to protect consumers, how do we take the intent of those rules? How do we get there using these new technologies? Thank you. 
Brian, uh, when you talked a little bit earlier, and I wonder if you could repeat for this bigger audience, how is this like or unlike where we were when the internet was in its infancy? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm Ryan Zagone with Ripple. Right. Um, and say your name so everybody can. Uh, Ryan Zagone with Ripple. Um, there's, there's a recognition here that there's many benefits to the technology. But unlike almost every other sector, the regulatory framework must be in place for innovation to take root in financial services. And there is a broad recognition that that is needed. Now, we've faced the same issue about an uncertain technology and an uncertain time before. This isn't the first time we've had to ask this question. And it was with the creation of the Internet. We, it was, we recognized it as initial use cases were negative to, to illegal, but it had much potential for benefits. And those are the benefits we've realized today. Now, we addressed the Internet in a very proactive way. And it was led by the White House at the time developing a, uh, a framework for e-commerce that had several characteristics. And it was consistency globally, that it was predictable and clear, that it included consumer protections, and it, it included uh, security. Like that was a framework that was adopted by the UN and in Europe. So it was almost global in perspective. That was a way to look at an, an emerging technology and we can create a framework for positive innovation to occur um, while allowing space to step in when negative things did happen. I, I, we proposed at Ripple taking that same framework developed by President Clinton, the framework on uh, electronic commerce, and just replacing electronic commerce with blockchain. Like that is the same situation we're in today. And despite it being a very challenging um, position to put regulators in, we've faced this challenge before and we've responded very effectively. Um, we're in, uh, I don't want to go call too many of my colleagues. Does any of the people who are in our group this morning want to say anything? Uh, David or Matt? Or, yeah? Okay. Hi, I'm Perry Ann Boring with the Chamber of Digital Commerce. And to reiterate on your question, what's some of the biggest challenges? Uh, one, it's also you have so many different regulators who are looking at this through very specific and different lenses. So, for example, at the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, they have testified in front of Congress saying this is a commodity and they're regulating it under the Commodities Exchange Act. Then you go over to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and there have been cases against companies who use Bitcoin and they look at it from the lens of a security. And then you go into the Treasury Department and you go to FinCEN. Uh, who will regulate it like a currency. They will not validate it and call it a currency, but they regulate it like currencies. Then you go to the other side of uh, Treasury to the IRS, and they're calling it property. Um, that's just a few very quick examples of how complicated it's already becoming on the federal level. And then when you also add in the different states, you have 50 states, 47 of them are regulating money transmission, and all these state regulators have different opinions on the best way to regulate virtual currency. It gets very complicated very fast. Uh, and what we see as a threat at the chamber is that if you have all these different regulators that are calling it something else and regulating it through a different lens all at the exact same time for the companies who have to get licensed or go through this process, it can be very difficult to become compliant with all the different regulators on the federal and the state level at the same time. So there's a huge amount of regulatory risk just through uh, coordination and well, issues of coordination and consistencies with the various regulators. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think a number of my colleagues here are... Uh, have already written many times that merging the CFTC and the SEC would be a good idea even before Bitcoin occurred. <laughs> but Michael, let me ask you a little bit about this. So uh, we've seen some business models in other industries that have been very 
disruptive, to use the now cliched term. Um, Uber with, uh, is in a regulated industry. Uh, Airbnb is in an industry which in some places is regulated, in many places is taxed. And in those instances, what happens is you have a startup, they, they grow very fast, uh, they don't ask anybody for permission, they get in trouble, and they do the mea culpa, we're sorry, oh, yes, we'll pay taxes, and yes, we won't let uh, rapists and child molesters drive our, our Uber cars and, and all that stuff. Um, but is financial services fundamentally different? That is, we regulate it very highly, and you can't go, whether you're uh, one of Barry's companies or uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and say, we're going to try this, and if the government, does the regulators say, oh, that's a no-no, we can say, oh, well, we're sorry. Is it more a case where you can't do anything unless you get permission first, and you can't figure out how to get permission first, so you're in this uh, awkward chicken-and-egg situation? I think it is a different space. I mean, we historically have regulated finance differently from other sectors of the economy. Um, we do have this very fractured uh, regulatory system that makes it harder. We have these problems of line drawing in finance and have had them not just because we have fractured regulatory agencies, but because there are different aspects or functions of financial products that raise different public policy concerns. So we think about them from different vantage points. Um, so I think that uh, Bitcoin is another example of uh, a kind of financial product that can cross many different lines. We have that in securities now. We have, we have products that are some features of securities and some features of insurance. We have products that have some features that are bank-like and some features that are securities-like. And the system has a very hard time coping with those in the sort of old-school, old-technology world. So I think Bitcoin is just a, a more uh, the most recent and maybe um, um, sexiest example of a problem that's existed for hundreds of years. How big a risk is it that we will lock in the dinosaurs? I think it's a huge risk. I mean, I, I said this morning that I think the, the biggest risk is actually that we develop a set of regulatory tools or fail to set develop tools, and so we, we lock in the old ways of doing things, and we block off innovation, and we don't get any of the upside. I think there's got to be a way that we can work together to focus on the severe downside risk cases, so uh, money laundering and terrorist financing, systemic risk issues, right. you know, widespread fraud, without... Uh, deciding all the answers to the questions we don't really understand yet about the other applications of the technology. Brad, what advice would you give to uh, wise and well-intentioned regulators and policymakers to get the best out of this stuff and minimize the, getting the chances of getting the worst of it? Um, well, I, well, I think there is some common sense that can be applied. So... Um, Technology is going to uh, limit your Washington career. I know. I, <laughs> I, I, I have limited skills in this area anyway. So, uh, but, I, but I think there's, there's um, unfortunately, there's accelerating um, um, benefits and improvements um, and adoption of technology in society. So it's not, it, it's, it's not good to go back and, and think how did it come at us in the past and that has traditionally been the way we kind of model our, okay, let me find that analog, and what did we do then, and let me try and replicate that with some minor tweaks. I think we have to, I have to, I think we have to become aware that, that there is an acceleration of, 
of adoption. And the regulators need to accommodate or, or adjust to the fact that it is accelerating because it, it, it really, we do need regulation. And um, I think the whole industry of how we regulate um, is, is getting interested in innovation um, itself. So, so that would be my, my piece is don't, don't kind of think it's, it's um, the pace is going to be the same. And there's a lot out there you can educate yourself on. Singularity University talks about the difference, how we're, we're programmed to think linearly versus exponentially. And the fundamental technology that we have that's changing healthcare, financial services, all the important industries in society are subject to that exponential um, curve. And, can and I, say, and I just... think that that's most people that are in Washington gravitated away from math and, and were, you know, great communicators, great history majors, policy major, policy, policy science majors. So I think you have to go back and in, whether you like math or not, math needs to be understood because it's going to, you're not going to be a great regulator without understanding that fundamental change that's happening. And it's not, it's not going away, so it's a reality. And I think, I think once that is, um, once that is um, understood, we're, we're going to have a lot more convergence. Michael? I, I think that, that just to pick up on the theme, though, I think that one of the real challenges for regulators, I think that the basic math is not the problem. The, the problem is... No, it's not basic. Have, it's advanced math. That's the problem. You have the... You stop at, at basic math, so we need advanced math here. I know. I think it's a bigger cultural and, and social science sense. I, I think that... that um, Sometimes an overly narrow focus on math can get us in a lot of trouble. I think the financial crisis, there was like some super sophisticated quants who made horrible mistakes. So I don't think it's just a math problem. It's trying to see a bigger picture. And the problem in seeing that bigger picture in technology, of which this is just one example, is this um, uh, uh, a switch gets flipped very quickly, as you described. So you have kind of... Uh, this ramp period, and then something um, takes off and becomes ubiquitous. And it becomes ubiquitous so quickly that the implications of it are not fully understood by the people who are doing it, let alone the people who are supposed to understand it to and maybe And it's going to happen it. over and over again. It happens so all the time. We've seen it many, many times. Right. I'm not saying there's anything unique about this. But so if you have a ubiquitous, you know, automatic, um, immediate system, it generates new risks. And we don't understand them until we see them, uh, and, and it's often too late. So we're asking regulators. I've, I just asked regulators to do something that's very, very hard, which is wait um, and not address maybe all the fundamental questions. But from a regulator's perspective, it, it may be too late. So they wait. They're protective of the innovation that's happening. They are not protective of the dinosaurs. They're open to the ideas. And then it turns out you have this ubiquitous, immediate, automatic technology that blows something up, and it's their fault. So I think it's important to recognize that tension. So are there any other people who are in our morning session who want to say anything before I turn to the audience? All right. Um, have at it. Uh, uh, Brendan has a mic here. Is there another one? And a uh, gentleman here on the aisle. So let's um, uh, tell us who you are and... Ask a question. Uh, I know there are a lot of Bitcoin enthusiasts here. I'm going to prevent speeches from being made. 
Good afternoon to everyone. My name is Bishop Harley, and I'm a bishop of a few churches. And you mentioned something about dinosaurs. One of the dinosaurs I want to ask a question about how you're going to address is the evangelical thinking concerning computers. And all I hear in the churches are about Revelation 13, um, Daniel chapter number 2, where there's a one-world order coming together concerning money, currency, and et cetera. So how are you going to address the church and calm them that this is not leading into, and it may sound funny to some, but that's a major belief in America, that this is not a part of the Antichrist system that would um, right. cause right. people to say, hey, without this number, you can't. That's a question for Barry. That, yeah, it is a question for, for Barry. But I think there's, I think there's, <laughs> but, uh, but you're not the Antichrist. Uh, but I think, I think there is a problem here that Bitcoin has around it this aura of, it may be what the, what the bishop said, it may be that it's a bunch of libertarians who are trying to, uh, uh, an anarchist, um, does, is that an obstacle to the adoption of the technology? And how do you talk to people about it in a way that's constructive? Well, I think, um, I think it's a feature, not a flaw. Um, and I think people would be, should, would be a lot more concerned if this was, with you know, all due respect to Goldman Sachs, if this was a Goldman Sachs effort, I think there would be a, a lot more. And I'm using Goldman Sachs as kind of, you know, kind of the octopus squid kind of, or whatever that <laughs> We got the implication. Yes. Um, and, and I think it, it kind of comes down to um, a fundamental uh, uh, review of the history of money. And if you look at money over um, centuries, it's been what society decides it is. Um, money has been rocks. It's been wampum. It's been salt. Um, maybe it's been gold. Um, it's been coins. It's been dollar bills. We're going to a cashless society regardless of whatever everybody thinks of, of Bitcoin. And so society, um, glo globally speaking, has decided that, that there's, Bitcoin is worth $6 billion today. Um, society may decide, decide tomorrow that Ripple is worth $6 billion. Society may decide that this is all just a fad and a Ponzi scheme and a, and a pyramid scheme. And I think because this, this was developed um, uh, by, um, let's call it, the more libertarian side of things, and the whole spectrum of, of, of what things to be worried about in our financial system, I am comfortable that it came from that side. But, you know, look, ultimately, no one is here. I'm certainly not here to evangelize Bitcoin as money. I'm here to support um, a true innovation that I think will promote financial inclusion that will improve a system that I think is fundamentally broken and, but ultimately, society will decide if this is the right solution or not. Okay. Why don't we take two or three questions and we get some answers. There's a woman on the aisle here, and, and then there's a gentleman in the white shirt behind her. Thank you very much, Victoria Adams, Booz Allen Hamilton. So when I look at the blockchain market nowadays when it comes to finance, I look at the West Coast, I see a ton of VC money going in that's focusing on the consumer and is trying to disrupt the financial system. And I see a bunch of money going in from big institutions on the East Coast that's trying to preserve their position. Respect to NASDAQ. So who's going to win? 10, 15 years from now? 
Is it going to be a radically disrupted financial system that we're seeing? Or is this technology going to be absorbed and successfully integrated into the system such that we see it strengthening and broadening the system to build greater inclusion and all these good things? Thanks. Good question. Uh, gentleman in, in the white shirt. My name is John Palmasano. My question is for the uh, government regulators or anyone really. Let's suppose I set up an exchange. I'm using blockchain and smart contracts. I'm not domiciled really anywhere. Let's say Ireland, for example. How does, what are the government regulations that I confront since in a smart contract, nobody knows really if I'm a buyer or a seller or what country I'm in, maybe not even know what my IP address is for all I know. So what am I concerned about in terms of governmental regulation and, and, and who specifically, at least in the United States, which agency? And gentleman here in the front. Excuse my seat. Uh, Mark O'Reilly with IBM. I've got a question about the potential for the unbanked. And in the United States, for example, some might not know, about a third of the country is unbanked, right? So what opportunities do you see with this technology to serve the unbanked? <laughs> um, all right. So uh, the woman from Booz Allen asked the un ultimate question, does anybody have the guts to answer it? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Sure, sure, we can answer both sides. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everybody wins. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I'll, I'll I'll go on record saying that in ten or fifteen years, um, the the financial uh, the dominant financial players are going to look nothing like what they look like today. Uh, we're going through a transformation of our financial system, our banking system. Banks are being disintermediated, attacked from every side, every angle. And I think part of it is their inability to innovate, given um, very you know kind of tough regulation. Is Bitcoin going to be the catalyst? I, 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 I certainly don't know, um, but this is so this is so early. We're so early in this in this the evolution of this technology. You know, I, I went through. You know, came out of it in two thousand nine. People really didn't care about it until two thousand thirteen. Companies just started getting getting funded two thousand four, two thousand fifteen, and so it's it's really too early to tell. And it's the reason why we've made investments in sixty companies, not six. <laughs> Brad. So, so, so there's incredible inertia in um, financial services. So I think the time frame that you outlined, um, many of the firms that we know today will still be in existence and will have strengthened themselves, and this will be a catalyst to modernize and improve the security. So I think they're going to be far better and stronger. Um, so that, some of them. But then I think some of them... Um, uh, there's going to be some new services that are just going to absolutely be phenomenally um, useful, and um, we're going to all use these new services, and they don't exist today. So I think there's going to be some new entrants um, that we're going to all go, wow, this, this service was built with technology that exists today, and it's so much better than um, the service it replaced. So I think that's my prediction is um, some of these firms are, are absolutely going to make it. I think a credit card itself is, is, is really outdated. As a, <laughs> and I used to build, I, I started my summer internship, I was running the embossing machine. So I manufactured credit cards and they locked me in a vault because I had these blank pieces of plastic. That I could, <laughs> and I also had a little machine when they jammed up, you know, I could create a, another one just on the fly. So that they locked us in a vault for that. You know, it did not have the security, as we all know, that, that it could have. Um, and then the telecom industry itself 
we used to drive over the Bay Bridge and get um, cloned on Treasure Island. They just sit there and you'd clone the first generation. And the telecom industry put a SIM chip in in the mid-90s, so 20 years ago, that we're just getting now today in credit cards. So um, financial services can improve with this technology, the security. Some of the existing firms are going to absolutely modernize and be around. That's, that's my prediction. So I, I want to report two things that were said at our roundtable this morning. One was that 80% of the new companies in this space will not be around in five years, but they will have had enormous impact on the economy. Yep. Netscape is history, but it had a huge effect. And the second was Glenn Hutchins, who I mentioned, uh, is an investor in this space, says he's investing in this because he thinks there's a 5% chance, 5 to 10% chance this could be the, one of the biggest technologies of his, in his lifetime, but 5 to 10 Michael, you wanted to speak on this question, on and this I want question. to talk about yeah, the unbanked. And then I'll talk about the unbanked. So just, um, <coughs> I, I think that, um, that, that Brad's basically right, that um, the, the betting is on the current system kind of being more efficient, but being kind of like it the way it is, because that's sort of the way the world works. But I do think there's a significant um, uh, risk or upside potential, depending on how you look for it, that it really could be transformative. And I think this kind of technology in a broader sense, is like what we're seeing in many areas of life. So not just in finances, for sure, being disintermediated in cool and, I think, interesting ways, in part by peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, platforms in payments, in credit, elsewhere, uh, potentially uh, elsewhere. Uh, but but th that disintermediation is, to me at least, the same that we're seeing in all walks of life. So if you think about um, trust, in the system. Trust used to be, you know, you um, had a big institution uh, and you put your faith in that big institution, government, a trade union, a political party, whatever. And that kind of trust is not how we establish trust anymore. We have networks of trust. And all those old systems of organizing trust, I think, are breaking down in society this is just another example of that. So if you were to think long-term about the way trust is established in the future, really long-term, I think trust networks in all these areas of life are the way to think about it. Hmm. Okay, now you've written a book about the unbanked. What's the potential for this? I didn't plant this question. I accused him. <laughs> um, I think that, look, right now the, the, the uses of this are, are far removed from uh, serving the least well-off. But I do think there's enormous upside potential for that to be transformative. It's one of the reasons I got interested in this area in the first place. Because I think if you can drive down cost uh, and improve the immediacy of payment, you can, not, not, not you necessarily will, but you can improve access for low and moderate income people. You can help uh, bank the unbanked with lower cost services. You can help improve financial management so that people can better match their income and expenses, so that when they get paid, their money is immediately available for them to use. Uh, you can help reduce the cost and improve the security of remittances uh, so people can send money um, home uh, uh, for much cheaper to their families. So I think all of these are ways, potentially, of improving consumer protection and improving access but we have to intentionally choose that path. It's just not going to happen because, you know, we think it's a good idea. 
Margaret, are you equipped to deal with the question from John Palisano about if I, I don't quite get it, but if you have, if I set a smart contract and I'm in Ireland, does anybody know where I am or who I am? <laughs> what the hell do we do about that? I'm not sure how well equipped I am. I think that, um, you know, speaking on behalf of state um, banking and financial services regulators, um, what you, your question though points to, I think, um, one of the uh, things that regulators are very mindful of, which is avoiding unintended um, consequences. Um, but maybe I'll hand it over Brad? To, to Brad. Yeah, so, when it, so having worked in the telecom industry and seeing that every country had their own telecom company and really um, wireless communications does not know borders, I think we're seeing another situation where the technology itself does not lend itself to being regulated by the, whether it's 50 states or whether it's by country. And, and you think about the transfer of ownership um, Bitcoin is a great example that you don't care which country a person's in, you can, you can effectively transfer to them. I think a lot of financial assets <clears throat> would benefit from that technology as well as ter in terms of facilitating transfer of ownership. So therefore, the, this notion of regulations is, is going to uh, somehow stop that from happening. I think it's the, the horse is out of the barn and with Bitcoin, and um, it happened in telecom, and it's going to happen in financial services. And we will see natural groups where it's unregulated start to um, inter interchange financially, you know, financial transactions. But eventually, um, countries are going to have to figure out that they don't have control over this anymore. So from a country standpoint... That's supposed to be reassuring? No, it's, no, it's just... A, it's just we, we dealt with it with, if you think about the telecom industry, it's, it's dramatically restructured based on the realities of the technology. So financial services like to, will do the same. I would like to jump back in on that briefly. And I think that there's a difference between the technology and what different folks do and companies and businesses do with the technology. Uh, at least speaking on behalf of state regulators, there's no state regulator that's looking at regulating the, the technology. But it becomes the act, it, states generally in a lot of different, most regulatory regimes are based somewhat at least on activities. What are you doing with it? You know, are you using the technology to offer a wallet service? Um, and you know, consumers in Maryland or California or Texas using that. Um, you know, even if the technology doesn't have like a, a home or a jurisdiction that you know it, it necessarily sits in, you have a consumer that you're providing a service to. Yeah, um, right. But and, it, ero and so it erodes the ability of the state or national authority to control that because I, I can get an account and we let see. Me, let me give you an example. Tension. I mean, there's yeah. tension in that, but that tension has been around right. since finance has been around. Right. I mean, finance has always been global. Mm -hmm. There's always been this tension between the state and the private actor in regulating that. And I, I think that, you know, if you, if you look at this example, this is a, just a slightly more, you know, acute new right. example of how it's really hard for nation states to regulate global affairs. Yep. So, so I think the, um, when you drop it down to um, the cost of a transaction, when it's under a penny, you, you can actually do fundraising. So you think about some of the, the early um, lending companies, 
um, that are out there, you know, the prospers and the lending clubs. Um, you can get the person who's lending the money gets a return. If you're in a traditional bank, you get no return, right? Your money just sits there, it's safe, but it gets no interest. You don't get any interest paid. So you can actually have your risk. So be completely um, right. um, transparent to you, and you can have an incredibly efficient lending system that is completely modernized. And, and when you can buy stock, so today you can only buy stock, only wealthy people can buy stock accredited investors. But if, you're, if your stock um, investment could be as much as your Starbucks in the morning, um, you don't have much consumer protection risk. So if I can invest, now all of a sudden a company can raise a tremendous amount of money because they can raise money, $5 from 100 million people. And it was cost, it was cost inefficient, mm -hmm. cost prohibitive to do that before. So this, this exists and someone will do it. That's my point is someone right. will go, the next big company will raise through 100 million people a dollar you raised $100 million. So um, that, that is available. So how do you, do you need to regulate Gentleman that? Gentleman in the middle here, and then, is there a mic in the back? So why don't you go to the woman in the back with the black, you, no, you. <laughs> Hi, Bill Schaefer. We've got a company called Epoch. It's a, it runs on SMS, so you can buy Bitcoin and send it to anybody in the world. How's it spelled? E-P-O-K. Okay. So, um, I used to. I was with a startup called EPOCH. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're running out of names. Okay. So hmm. we are registered with FinCEN as an MSB because we're mean? selling a thing. What's an MSB? A money service business versus a money transfer operator, which is important. My uh, chief compliance officer was from the CFTC and the SEC. Um, I'm on my third bank. Tell me what can I do differently, right? So these banks, they're de-risking because of the massive fines they had because money laundering, right? So that's been around way before Bitcoin. So I'm in this, I'm in this spot where and the banks have no interest in it, even though I'm doing everything I possibly can from a regulatory perspective. So, and as far as the unbanked, our customers are unbanked here, and they're sending money wherever, goes to Africa to the unbanked. They get it on mobile money on their phone, right? They're walking down the street in Nairobi, they get a hundred bucks. Right. Um, you know, what can I do differently from, okay. from a banking perspective? Okay, thank you. Uh, the woman in the back. Um, I'd like to, I'm Carol Van Cleef uh, with Manette Phelps and Phillips and uh, Chamber of Digital Commerce. And I um, like to offer a couple of observations and ask a question. First, to the, the gentleman who raised the question about the churches, uh, there's a really nice, easy, as the mother, as, a, as the daughter of a Methodist minister and the mother of an Episcopalian priest, uh, I have had many discussions about how this will make raising money in the churches through tithes, offerings, and so on yeah. a much more efficient and cost-effective uh, uh, process. Incentives. Uh, Incentives. <laughs> Um, moving on to a comment that was made earlier about why is this area different than uh, an Uber or uh, the Internet development. There are a couple of statutes that uh, do make this fundamentally different when we're talking about uh, the currency aspect of the transaction. There's a federal statute that makes it illegal. It's a federal crime to operate a business that's not registered as a money service business or is appropriately regulated at the state level, which thanks to uh, the uh, efforts of Margaret and her organization, they've really helped bring a lot 
greater clarity. Um, there's also another provision that many people are not aware of. It's also a federal crime to, to engage in deposit taking if you're not a bank. And I've been, in, I've been in conversations with bank regulators in the past week who have actually raised questions about models in this area as to whether they are engaging in, excuse me, in deposit taking. Um, so we've got some major hurdles to deal with to clear away some of the, I would say, noise at this point, but it's a little bit more than noise, uh, with respect to one aspect of, of this um, uh, ecosphere we're dealing in. Um, I think there's been great strides made in the last two years um, uh, in clarifying the different verticals that we're operating in from currency to uh, uh, use over for securities exchanges, uh, what's a commodity, and so on. Um, uh, it, there's a lot more that has to happen. And I guess the question I would have is how can we get back to where we were two years ago when there was an incredible amount of entrepreneurial zeal in the community? It's become much more mature now. It's not the same level of excitement, the same level of buzz when you go to a conference. But um, what can, how can we make some strides, maybe educating the regulators more, the policymakers, as well as maybe educating those who are getting into the business as to what the hurdles are that they have to encounter? Are you suggesting that there's less zeal because the regulators have been uncooperative or that people have just gotten lost there? immature enthusiasm or what? Um, I think that there are a couple factors that have come into play, but it's clear that the efforts from the law enforcement and the prosecutorial community have had a significant impact on the fund fundraising that is happening in the area. And as soon as those funds start to dry up, uh, and this began really okay. probably okay. summer of 2013 timeframe, uh, or 14, I'm losing track of time here. But um, uh, but we saw a real change in the flow of funds, and the question is, why did that change okay. happen? There's a question right here, gentleman here in the blue shirt. Hi, my name's uh, Akshay Dave. I'm a fintech investor. Uh, there was news recently about Zimbabwe adopting the Chinese yuan. I was talking to a central banker recently, and there's some risk that like, the relevance of small country central banks will be reduced to not as most or some significant percentage of transactions occur in Bitcoin. Right? Would that have an impact on monetary policy control within countries? And that's like a global impact. How, what do people think? Okay, and there's one a woman here in the front. Thank you. Thanks for having this. My name is Lorelai Kelly. Um, I run the Resilient Democracy Program with the new Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the Senate. Uh, the question I have is more related to the blockchain, which I see as sort of a citizen-facing possible integrity engine for information, um, possibly uh, rebuilding the information architecture of Congress based on this kind of, of um, tool. Because uh, I don't think I have to say it has an information integrity uh, problem and a low trust problem. Um, but one thing that you could do that I think they would be really open to is go to one of the financial services subcommittee and set up something simple like a stack exchange based on a, a blockchain model uh, for some very simple low-hanging fruit topic so they see how the technology works. Is this possible? Have you seen this happening for policy support and policy decision-making with information in any entities, United States, elsewhere? So I want to take, uh, I want to answer, give a stab at two of the questions before I turn to the panel. Uh, 
I think on the um, uh, on Zim I think Zimbabwe is a leading indicator of nothing. Uh, that uh, it, they don't basically have a functioning currency, uh, and they're not going to be able to use the yuan, and their problems go well beyond anything that any central banker can solve. I think that there is a problem, a threat to small <coughs> countries maintaining their own currencies. It is not Bitcoin. It's like life and the dollar. Um, so this may be one manifestation of it. When you look at the fundamental forces that are going on there, uh, it's, not, it's not coming from technology. It's coming from other things. It's what globalization does. It makes it harder to be an island unto yourself. Um, uh, our attempts to get somebody from FinCEN here today didn't work out, so I just want to mention one thing before I turn to the panel on these four very good questions. There are a bunch of people um, uh, who form something called the Blockchain Alliance, which is uh, people in the industry and people in the law enforcement community who are trying to find a way to work through these issues so that basically, my word's not theirs, we can have less bad stuff and more good stuff, and we don't inadvertently have less good stuff in our attempt to get less bad stuff. How can law enforcement agencies use this uh, to their advantage? Where is it a threat? Where isn't it a threat? Um, there's a number of lawyers who have been at the Justice Department who are now working on that. Um, none of them are here, so I don't know if anybody can speak to your issue, but I think this is, uh, in the terms of the trade, this has become a known issue, right. and people are trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, uh, Barry raised the question already of uh, companies that have anything involving Bitcoin not being able to get uh, bank as a customer. Is that a question you, that comes up in your it comes up a lot. Um, and what's the answer? What's yes, the solution? Uh, well, I don't know about that. Um, but <laughs> what I can say is that for um, so state regulators are in um, a position different than a lot of their federal counterparts because they regulate banks as uh, charter and supervise banks, but they also license and regulate a broad range, as I said earlier, of non-bank financial services entities. And one of the things that we've actually been working um, with FinCEN on um, and and with our other federal counterparts is around this issue of the de-risking um, of banks. And you have to remember, we are coming out of a major financial crisis that would have nothing to do with a lot of the business activities we're talking about today. But writ large, at 50,000 feet, was about financial institutions taking too much risk. Um, and, and so that is, you know, we, you know, that is just in the rearview mirror for regulators and, and for everybody else. Um, and, and so that's the kind of the reality of the environment. Uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do um, in a lot of different settings is talk about the, the licensing process as well as the you know, collaboration with FinCEN as part of the credentialing um, to, to help to um, you know, kind of figure out a way for banks to better calibrate their own risk. We talk with our federal counterparts a lot about this and, and we're looking at ways to help banks um, assess and de develop tools for banks to assess their own um, risk, just like the uh, FFIEC just came out with a cybersecurity assessment tool for depository institutions. You know, is there a way to come out with a um, self-assessment tool for banks to help them assess the risks of their own customer base, but also assess and, um, and evaluate how well they are managing those risks? Because I think the state regulators feel like, uh, you know, for a bank, you know, it, it shouldn't be a, a global decision across an entire industry or defining a, an, any, you know, bucket of businesses. It should be about an individual institution 
its customers and can that institution measure its, its own risks? And this is, this is an evolving area. I mean, it's touching um, a lot of different spaces. It's also reaching into um, the question about border communities. And you know, that definitely has an impact on you know, you know, cross-border. And when I say border, you know, the US-Mexico border and you know, movement of goods and services there. And so it's a, it's a big topic for a lot of regulators. Brad, is there any practical way to set up a little blockchain demonstration inside an agency or inside the mm -hmm. committee of a committee? Yeah, actually, um, Microsoft is um, with in trying to catch up with uh, with Amazon. They actually have with their cloud service Azure have um, a lot of the, the the companies that that have product to demonstrate um, have gone to to uh, Microsoft and they have it. Um, spun up in, in Azure, so you could actually go there and say, okay, which one is appropriate for us to experiment with? And very low cost, wouldn't have to go through any, um, you know, government IT shop if you just get permission to say we're going to play here. And, you know, I wouldn't put anything too, you know. <laughs> confidential. Yeah, confidential there, but you could play. Yeah, so that that is, um, that's the beauty of the cloud. Um, and Microsoft is very much um, supportive of, of, uh, of a lot of the, the, the leading companies right now have, have taken the time to go through and set it up there. So that would, it would be very low cost and, um, and you, could, you could play around with it in, in a matter of days. I'll take a couple more. There's, uh, there's three questions in the and back I don't there. work for Microsoft. So I, it's I, just, so uh, that's why <laughs> if you did, I wouldn't have let you see yeah. it. So there's three guys there. Why don't you do those and then we'll take a few more. Thank you, Larry Checo. Um, three very simple questions, I think. What is a Bitcom worth today? Is it stable? And going, and if it's not, going back to David's original example, I give a dollar to the taxi cab driver. He's got my dollar. He knows the value of that dollar. If I'm doing, if I'm doing this with Bitcom, I know people who invested and lost a lot and made a lot. It's not. It doesn't seem to be a parity there. And I'm just wondering. That's my complaint about the trust factor in all of this. I mean, you, what's backing a big right. time? Okay. Thank you. Uh, can you pass the mic to the... Uh, hi, Alan Pulse. For a question for Margaret, please. Um, you, you said earlier, uh, if one consumer is ripped off, that's the responsibility of the regulators. And I'm wondering if it has to be all or nothing like that. I mean, there's a whole community out there. There's Better Business Bureau. There's Yelp. There's Google. There's the Internet. I wonder if there might not be a role for um, if a consumer is interested in doing business with an unregulated or unlicensed business, maybe they should have that option. Maybe they should be able to take that risk upon themselves as long as they know in advance the business says we're not licensed. Maybe, you know, you shouldn't be taking away that consumer choice. So I'm wondering what you would think about okay, that. Thank you. And for someone else. Yeah. Hi, my name is Carter Doherty. I'm a journalist. Uh, I just wanted to throw out a question there about you've talked about the dinosaurs by which people usually seem to mean the banks in very passive sense. Oh, if we do these regulations, you know, that'll lock the dinosaurs in without thinking, without suggesting at all during this presentation, the dinosaurs might have something to say about this. And I know it's shocking that regulation might turn political from time to time in this town. Um, but I mean, that's the reality is the incumbents make a colossal amount of money off of the simple task of moving money. Um, that it's impossible for me to see that regulation doesn't get drawn into this. You know, we used to say in my first job in Washington covering regulation, the point of, the point of business was generally either to slow it down, stop it, or use it to screw their competition. All right. 
Uh, um, Barry, do you want to take the Bitcoin currency? Is it stable? Yep. What is it? Um, so answer your question. Price is 432 right now. 431. There's a lot of different. Um, if you just go to, if you have an Android or an Apple product, you can download a bunch of different um, apps that will track it for you, and they're free. Yep. So it's kind of fun to do. So if you if you want to get real time, you can do that. Our uh, new company, CoinDesk, has a, uh, <laughs> a Bitcoin price index. Oh, God. Um, it was a softball. I yeah, think. it was. It uh, was. Uh, so um, best performing currency in 2011, Bitcoin. 2012, Bitcoin. 2013, Bitcoin. 2015, Bitcoin. Uh, not 2014. <laughs> um, and uh, I think you should not be viewing it today as a functional currency. You should not be viewing it as an alternative to the U.S. dollar. It's not a unit of account. Um, it may not be a great store of value. Um, but if you live in places like South Africa, Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, Ukraine, Russia. Um, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. And the list is long and it's growing very quickly. Um, you may not love the volatility of Bitcoin, but at least you know it's not just going in one direction. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say um, that um, um, the only way that Bitcoin can fulfill its promise of being a financial rail, as being a way to provide a platform for services to the unbanked, uh, the only way that it can really be transformative is if there's a lot more of Bitcoin out there in circulation and a lot more volume and velocity. The supply of Bitcoin, it grows at a fixed, predictable rate. So the only input into that is the price. So a fairly unpopular opinion that I love to make as frequently as possible is the killer app today for Bitcoin is speculation. But if the price of Bitcoin goes up, over time that volatility should decrease, and then it becomes this fantastic enabling technology that I think will change the world. Margaret, uh, why do you stop consumers from engaging with unlicensed businesses if they know what they're doing? <laughs> well, um, laws and regulations exist in part to address a, you know, sort of an, an imbalance or an asymmetry in information, if you will. And, and so you know, in a world of perfect information, um, as I recall some of my first-year law professors talking about, you know, you wouldn't need that much. But, you know, the... the you get to the second year, we say it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the reality is that you have laws that prevent that right now. And I think that, um, you know, th though that's not to say that there aren't opportunities you know, particularly at the state level for experimentation. Um, but the reality is that for that type of thing to happen right now, you know, you'd have, you know, the, the company would be breaking the law to engage in business with the consumer. I think the risk is yeah. to the industry that if a few people get ripped off and that ends up on the front page of every newspaper right. in the country, uh, the industry dies. So it's not only a question of, it is, of course, ultimately a protecting, unsuspecting, uninformed consumers who may think they know what they're doing, but don't. But we know that it can have huge ripple effects. Um, Michael, can you speak to Carter's question about the possibility that entrenched interests will use regulation to stop innovation because the innovation threatens their profits? I, I, I unfortunately think Carter's right. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons why I said it the way I did, um, entrenching the interests of the dinosaurs, 
or locking in the, the dinosaurs is that the dinosaurs have enormous power. They're very big. Um, they're very um, established. They run the current uh, payment system. They extract a lot of uh, profit from the current payment system. And uh, wringing out the costs from the payment system means reducing their profits. Uh, and they don't like that, and they will fight like crazy to keep the advantage they have in the current system. Uh, and I think that's a significant risk in the regulatory environment we live in. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think fundamentally, in addition to addressing the substance of, of finance, uh, we need to address uh, the substance of the role of money in politics. Okay, let's take a few more, and then we're going to end. There's, uh, there's two gentlemen here, one in the T-shirt and the one in the gray sweater. Bitcoin T-shirt. Hi, I'm Winslow Sargent. With regard to the unbanked, I think that that problem has already been solved in terms of mobile money. What are your thoughts in terms of um, not just looking at the unbanked, but more looking at the role that cell phone companies should play? Because we all have a cell phone. The majority of the world have a cell phone with a number, so that number could actually be your, quote-unquote, your bank account number. And so that cell phone carriage can become, can become more dominant in terms of the role that mobile money will play, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's the way that we mm -hmm. transact. Okay, so thank you. I think that that should be mm -hmm. a focus. Okay. And the gentleman in the Bitcoin T-shirt? <laughs> Stand up so everybody can see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Matt McKibben, um, I work for a company called Ubiquity LLC, um, and we're doing uh, real estate transactions on the blockchain. Um, so what, what do you see in terms of the non-financial applications moving Question. forward, such as identity, voting, real estate, um, uh, and the land administration in general uh, moving forward. It's an immutable public ledger. So what else can we put on this ledger? Right. Good question. Okay. Uh, want to take the mobile phone? Yeah, I'll start with, I, I, I think we have a long way to go in solving the problems of, of unbanked and underbanked households. I think there's still a lot of progress to go. I think one avenue that is fruitful um, is to give, and this is, this is true not just for low and moderate income households, but for, for all of us, uh, to give individuals more ownership of our own um, identity and more ability to choose who we share that identity with and for what purpose. And an aspect of that could be a universal portable bank account number. Uh, there's been a lot of progress in the UK on this. Um, there's much more to do there. And there's been almost no progress here. Uh, I think we could make enormous um, difference for the lives of people if we empowered individuals to, to, to own all of that themselves. Harry? So um, in Kenya, there's um, a concept called M-Pesa, uh, which is run, run by Safaricom. Some of you may have seen a 60-minute story on it a few months ago. Um, it is an interesting, um, uh, I guess, uh, example of uh, how a telecom could provide value through mobile money transfer, but the day after that 60 Minutes report, uh, Safaricom cut off one of our companies, BitPesa, from the M-Pesa network uh, for really no good reason, uh, because our company was enabling the movements of Bitcoin in and out of M-Pesa. So that is an example of you have an incumbent that creates a dominant position and creates a walled garden that doesn't allow innovation to happen um, in that country. So I do think it's a fantastic opportunity, and I do think that over time it's going to be the, the Bitcoins and the BitPesas that are creating that that solution, not, not the telecom companies. And does someone want to speculate a little on the non-financial services uses of yeah. the ledger? Yeah, so, so 
if I were if I were to think about the three main things that exist on Earth for long periods of time, they're people, they're products that are built, and um, and companies that are created like AT and T. So all those have through their life have have um, incredible inefficiencies in in keeping track of them from birth. So from manufacturing a product. So having worked at eBay, our our nirvana was that we had this global product catalog that all you had to do is type in some number and it would explode all the attributes of that product. So the person selling a product on eBay didn't have to type in and explain it and take a picture of it because the person who built that and created it knew exactly what those specs were, but they're lost. You know, it's a product is sold, the owner doesn't have those specs. So the example is any product that, you know, we don't want to throw in a dumpster that we want to actually facilitate <laughs> ownership many times, um, that's one. When, whenever we're born in a, in a hospital, we should have a tag that allows us to, you know, enable smart programming. We can vote at a certain age. We can do all these things. So the attributes that a citizen um, should have. So keeping track of people is a great one. And then also in the financial industry, and that's the one that we're working on today, from the beginning of uh, one of Barry's companies, someone has an idea, then they issue stock, and that stock goes through all the way to from Alexander Graham Bell to AT&T. Imagine all the, th the time we spent just keeping track of those shares of those stock. Um, you, we could do a much better job with the technology that exists today. So I think it's not just financial services at all. I think it is everything that is in products that can be um, record kept back better and facilitate change of ownership in a digital way. So that would be my summary on that. Michael, last word. Um, I just want to go back to the point the woman in the front made about democracy. I think there is potentially a role for using this kind of technology and open ledgers to improve transparency in government uh, and in the political system. And again, it's not something that we would necessarily do uh, on our own in the system uh, without a, a strong push. But I think the kind of technology is open to that use as well. Okay, well, I want to thank everybody for coming and particularly thank the panelists here and those who participated this morning. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast on your social networks, Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.